Welcome to the Idea Bordello with me, your host, Roy Mate Borole. The Idea Bordello is my personal podcast and I guess a personal love letter to myself in many ways, but onto that at another stage and another time. I use my podcast to interview interesting and captivating minds to discuss some of my favorite topics, interesting ideas, and controversial flavor combinations. Thank you so much for downloading and streaming this podcast, and I hope you have a really great time listening to me and my guests wax lyrical on a myriad of different topics. This episode's guest is the super insightful and intelligent Brendan Murphy. Brendan is a London Business School graduate. He also went to Hilton for his sins and recently founded Cypress Point Capital, a late stage venture fund. We touched on a number of different topics ranging from designer babies to interesting arbitrage opportunities to the unrelenting upside or sim- of simply being a good person. We also geek up on tech, venture, private equity, and also touch on the power of self-reflection, diet, and mortality. It's a fireside chat with lots of really awesome takeaways, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we both did. Please take the time to rate this podcast at the end of your listen. And as always, stay wise and condomize. And don't forget, go to therapy. Now, without any further interruptions, here's my chat with the incredible, insightful, and intelligent Brendan Murphy. Brendan, thank you so much for joining us on my podcast. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. No, no, awesome, awesome, awesome. Do you mind introducing yourself to the lovely ladies and gentlemen at home? Of course, yeah. So my name is Brendan Murphy, originally from Zanzi, but now living in London. Um, I run a late-stage venture firm here in London. So for us, that's Series B+, and investing in fintech, marketplace, and SaaS businesses. Awesome, awesome. Um, how did you end up getting into the investing space? Yeah, so I started my career at Standard Bank, Big Blue, and was originally a chartered accountant for my sins, and then ended nice. up in the. <laughs> I know, right? Um, like like all, so all well advised um, uh, <laughs> private school kids, and yeah, yeah. yeah so, so I ended up in the asset management uh, business of, of Standard Bank and managing public equity portfolios. So sort of was on an investment sort of business management track and okay. decided that I wanted to move to the UK five years ago. I think in many ways, I outgrew South Africa professionally and also personally to a large degree. And I, and I really do love SA, um, but for, for someone sort of my ambitions just felt like a bit of a, a small pond. So decided to move to the yeah. UK, did my MBA at London Business School, um, had a fantastic experience there. And during that time, transitioned to private markets investing. So originally an early stage venture firm called Concentric, and then at a private equity firm called Alta One Capital, where essentially we did enterprise SaaS, like large scale, 500 million euro plus buyouts. Mm. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed working with those guys. And then pandemic happened. And I had this sort of fantastic trip planned with sort of like me and my seven best friends. We we're going to go back to SA. I was going to show them the motherland. And that was all sort of canceled because of COVID. And I had this moment where instead of being in a villa in Cape Town, I was on yeah. Zoom with my mates and everyone was talking over each other. It was the first <laughs> Zoom call. So it was an absolute nightmare. 
uh, guys. Oh man, it was, it is. And, and I just had a seminal moment. I was like, this is not my life. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. Screw this. I need to change. And I think for a long time, I'd kind of been harboring entrepreneurial ambitions. My family is full of entrepreneurs. So I kind of felt there was also this sort of familial imperative to do that. And yeah, I decided that I wanted to start something. So it took me a couple of months, basically through the summer to figure out that I actually wanted to start my own investment business. Um, mm -hmm. In the early days, it was a lot of peddling and a lot of progress. You know, I almost, you know, kind of ashamed now to think of sort of, you know, how we were looking at businesses and how we were sort of approaching raising capital. But, you know, in many ways, we got quite lucky because, you know, you had the massive dislocations in markets and obviously more visible in public markets. And then you also had all these sort of changes in the way that we lived and worked and consumed things. So the sort of fundamental opportunity was there. And I guess the last piece of the puzzle, which suddenly really fell into place after we'd started the business, you know, it became quite clear that you could raise money over Zoom. And I think in many cases, because people were stuck at home, you know, they didn't want to go downstairs and, and sort of play with their kids. They were often sort of willing to take my calls and and sort of, you know, like people would open their calendars to me, which I, I, I thought they wouldn't. So in many ways, got quite lucky in terms of the timing. At the time, it didn't seem so. A lot of people were asking me, like, you know, why the hell are you going on your own? People are losing their jobs. But, you know, I think in many ways, I felt sort of if I couldn't do it, then, you know, like who else would? And I looked at friends of mine who, you know, were sending money back to SA to support their parents and, you know, guys who, you know, had, were trying to pay off debt after, after going to business school. So, you know, in many ways, I thought it was the right timing for me as well to take a bit of career risk. Um, so, yeah, I just decided to take the plunge, uh, launch the business. And yeah, it's going okay. We haven't gone under yet. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the number one marker of success in this game, not fucking out. <laughs> exactly. Survival of success, as someone smarter than me once said. Yeah, but I also think that like, you know, if you can survive winters, then summers will be glorious. You know what I mean? So um, this is the, the ultimate test of your skill set. But at the same time, uh, your patience, because if you can survive these periods, then when things get good, they get really, really good. Yeah, sweet. So just to get into it, um, a ton of questions. Um, I really appreciate the time that we've got to spend together in the past. And thank you so much for doing this. Um, and I've always really enjoyed our chats. So I'm just going to jump into them. Um, okay, cool. So like, I mean, you've been operating in the, in the VC slash PE game, in the late stage game. And, you know, what I really like about VC slash the PE game is that it's not a zero sum game, right? So like a lot of people can win in one deal, right? But it attracts hyper competitive people. So like my question then would be like, how have you seen ultra competitive VCs and PE guys and girls cooperate for mutual benefit? like mutually beneficial like um, like uh, setups and deals while still maintaining that like competitiveness that they, you know almost that like is like built or caked into their like personality yeah i mean that, that's a really interesting one i think you know i always think that like vc is a lot like sort of high school where it's full of frenemies and people are, you know, all like, oh, yeah, we're super collaborative, but they will throw their collaborators under the bus to lead a deal. And I immediately, yeah, it, it really is. And people gossip, man. It is totally like like high school all over again. And yeah, I think, you know, it, it's a really interesting, yeah, just kind of interesting world in that. In terms of balancing sort of, you know, competitive personalities. I think it depends. I mean, some some firms, you know, especially the later stage firms, you know, a lot of our pipeline comes from the early stage firms that we know quite well. And, you know, we don't we don't sort of get in their way. 
it's like, it's like sometimes when they want to follow Parata and they want to, you know, sort of spin up a sidecar or SPV to uh, do that, you know, there is a bit of competition, but generally, you know, we'll refer them stuff that's too early for us and they will send, you know, some of the more successful portfolio companies to us. So there's definitely a bit of symbiosis there. Um, when mm. it comes to sort of, you know, early stage firms collaborating, there are very few that sort of really do it properly. And we'll also too, we'll want to talk about it, right? Because I think for a long time, the VC old boys club um, sort of image was quite true. And, and they would sort of work against founders and they would depress valuations. Whereas now that's obviously sort of, you know, the script has been flipped and in many ways founders are playing VCs against themselves or, you know, over against each other. So, which I don't think mm. is necessarily a bad thing, right? I think for a long time, you know, the value out of VC has been pretty low and just because of, yeah. If, you know, yeah, just an imbalance between the amount of capital and the amount of deals available or the number of companies that are being founded, um, you know, that has kind of created this, you know, an unnecessary value extraction. But look, I think at the same yeah. time too, that is the nature of these things is that, you know, it's not a part of how much money it's about when you get it. So I think you know, that, like, I, I, I try not to bash the VC industry. It's been really good to me. And I think in many ways, and as you said, you know, it's not, it's not a zero sum industry. It's not yeah. like, you know, high frequency traders trading against the market or each other. It is very much, you know, funding the next, you know, step in human innovation and technology that, which, you know, might not always be, you know, fantastic for us, but does improve the convenience of our lives. And if, you know, if it allows a really smart person to save an hour in their day, you know, even if it's like grocery delivery, which a lot of people like to have a go at, you know, if it makes the smartest people in the world, you know, it gives them more time back, then that's a good thing for society, right? Because they're going to solve bigger problems faster. And I think sometimes the opportunity cost of not solving big problems is higher than we, we want to admit. Completely. And I think to second that notion, um, I think above all else, you know, like um, in order to get things done really efficiently, you, you, you want as few roadblocks as possible. You know, and getting someone out and, and like outsourcing your grocery shop to third party, you know, and taking that stress out of your to do on a day to day. Well, I mean, even if you call that a bit of, you know, a wank or so on and so forth, it's still very valuable to the person who's paying for it. Right. And so, 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 so I, I still see that as some form of innovation and it's a huge value to human society as a whole. So, I mean, I don't know, like I've got a lot of different varying views on VC and I think it varies because the VC space is so dynamic. And, you know, I think um, what you were talking about right now about founders flipping the script on VCs, it, it very much reminds me of like, you know, like the, the, the cycles that we go through in the, the tech space, you know, it's, it's very much a new hope, you know, so like a new industry starts, then like it's return of the empire and then like that's your crash and then like, you know, or a strike, and then the empire strikes back. And then like, you know, the final chapter generally in technology is that maturation phase, which will be like, you know, the Jedi is returning and like the founders taking back control. And I think specifically going back to what you're talking about earlier with regards to SaaS, you know, I think we've seen a lot of that over the last four years. Uh, whereas, you know, when the space first started, started out, there was still a very considerable amount of influence that VC had and that was able to, um, Rest control from founders. Whereas, uh, you know, like if you look at where SaaS has gone over the last decade, I, I'm of the view that founders are very much in control and uh, not the VCs. But yeah, that's another topic for another day. Um, Tommy, 
Are there any sectors that you do not invest in because of legal reasons, but you find interesting nonetheless and like you like to observe or just, you know, have a look at? Yeah, so we're not like restricted um, in terms of mandate. Um, look, some, some investors and our, some of our LPs will not invest because of sort of, you know, religious or personal reasons. And we obviously yeah. respect that. But, you know, for us, we're sort of, we don't look at areas. We try to avoid areas we don't understand. And that's why okay. we sort of, you know, stuck to businesses that we can get arms around of. And we've also tried to avoid stuff that's super capital intense, um, you know, hardware, space sort of being the one exception, um, just because we think you know, SpaceX is such an incredible business and Elon Musk is just a generational entrepreneur. So, mm. you know, it, it's always tough when we, you know, you kind of, as a VC and as an investor, you want to have influence, you want to build a brand, you know, you want to, you also too have to provide value to your founders and your LPs. So you have to have a differentiation, so, you know, you've got to have an angle. So just being another small investor in SpaceX doesn't always make sense. So those are definitely sort of edge cases. Um, yeah. But, you know, in, in terms of industries that we, that we've seen that probably are the most interesting, you know, I still think the Web3 space and, you know, it's great now that we're going through a bit of a price dump on the crypto side, because as you mentioned earlier, you know, the winters is when the real sort of building gets done, right? When the, when the yeah. hats are made. And I think the true sort of builders are head down, you know, they're not checking their portfolios daily. They're, they're just writing code, the tourists and, you know, the grifters and those sort of people will get flushed out. And honestly, like, I, I think it's a really good thing because one of my biggest concerns about, well, one crypto and two, just the general financialization of our lives, right? And that a lot of smart kids coming out of school today aren't thinking I want to be a nuclear physicist or I want to be, a, you know, a geneticist or something that really yeah. contributes to society, right? It's, it's, I want to be a crypto trader or I want to be an NFT trader, or I want to, I want to trade stuff on Robinhood. And I think that for me has sort of, been a signal that perhaps we've gone too far and is a great example of the sort of unintended consequences of monetary policy, right? And I think, you know, it's, and obviously the, the Fed now is saying, oh, you know, well, maybe we shouldn't have printed so much money. At the moment in time, it was totally the right thing to do, right? Apocalyptic yeah. disasters like, you know, global pandemics need to be avoided and, and people need to be protected against the impact of those. And, you know, if you really want to dive into this, and I probably don't think this is the right space, nor do your series want to, but Alan Greenspan put us on this track a long time ago. So it kind of, yeah. you know, we've, we've already, you know, it's a little too, too late to turn back now. But, you know, I, I think it's, we need to be so careful about, also too, just generally signaling to young people that money is so important. And, you know, I like to think that, you know, some some of our friends are sort of more enlightened people, and yet, you know, we're, we're always just trying to chase the dollar as this, you know, one enabler of our happiness and two is a sort of signal success. And it's, I mean, sorry, I, I'm rambling a little bit here. So feel free to, no, 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 no. But, um, you know, I was listening to Naval Ravikant on the way to, to a meeting earlier. And he was saying that, you know, he, originally he thought freedom was about having the freedom to do things, having so much money that you can do whatever you want. You can, you know, you don't have to work. You can, you know, you can buy whatever you want. And then he said, he realized actually freedom is freedom from those things. It's freedom from, you know, emotions, it's freedom from, you know, being, yeah. you know, a hostage to your own thoughts and others' expectations and societal obligations. And it really resonates with me because I think that's 
what I've really been chasing is this sort of freedom to just have own internal peace. And I think with, you know, by, by chasing money, we really are creating our own captor and money, like, you know, like your mind, money is the servant, it's not the master. So you gotta be so careful about how you, you know, how you approach that relationship. Okay. No, no, I hundred percent uh, appreciate that. And I can agree with that quite considerably, especially considering, um, I suppose the limited utility of capital in a world that is incredibly chaotic and like um, terrifying. Um, on that same question, um, speaking about youth and investing and young people getting into investing, something I've, I've been like really curious about for years. And I think as I get older, I'm starting to find a lot of um, uh, like bias or confirmation bias around this idea is that like, you know, you're uh, in your early 30s now, I guess, not too early, but you're in the beginning at least, you know. <laughs> and your um, weird things start happening to you, like, biologically, right, at this part of your life. And the one thing that, like, I found to be really interesting is this idea of, like, how your metabolism and, like, your microbiome can, like, shape your decision-making as you get older. And, like, I was speaking to someone the other day, and they were, like, talking about the good old days. And another person butted in and said, you know, like, those were the good old days for you because, like, you know, you could just wake up in the middle of the night and take a piss. Whereas, like, now, you know, you're 65. So you take wake up in the middle of the night and it takes you about 60 minutes to get the piss out. You know what I mean? So as someone who's an investor or working in the investment space primarily, do you know, do, do have you found that biological traits within your body have helped you make much more sound decision making or that, like, your metabolism slowing down has helped you see things a bit more clearly in any way? Yeah, it's really funny you said because it actually has been something I've, I've been thinking about because I'm looking to do a personal check into a friend's high-protein cereal startup. And mm. it's really got me thinking about how I manage my intake of nutrients throughout the day. And I've noticed that, you know, I often, when I'm stressed, I stress eat and I eat high yeah. three things to make myself feel good, right? And I've, you know, when I was younger, I think I used to, you know, my work strategy was just, you know, pound the coffees, um, you know, sometimes take things that I probably shouldn't have taken. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, I guess everyone, everyone goes through sort of an Adderall phase at, at university. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and sort of like thinking that productivity was like revving your engine. And I guess maybe that was a function of the roles I was in, where it was more about sort of output and building financial models and stuff like that. Whereas now, you know, I get paid for sound judgment, right? It's about sort of deals. It's about, you know, underwriting good deals. And I realized that, you know, my, my optimal state is actually being very calm, very balanced. And a part of that, you know, a part of that is meditation. A part of that is, you know, working out at the right times of the day. But a big part of that is also managing what I put in my body. Um, and whether it's sort of, you know, alcohol the night before or it's what I eat during the day, managing that. And I think, you know, kind of the, the link to your question is that when I was younger, I wasn't quite aware of those things and maybe my metabolism was faster. So, you know, I could process, you know, sugars and stuff a lot quicker, but now I really do feel the impact of, of what I eat. Um, and yeah, I guess, you know, at the same time too, I guess there's definitely a lot, a lot less testosterone in the system. Uh, Woo! You know, exactly. And, and I, I think it definitely drives a lot more sort of thoughtful, processes i think you know there were times when you know i would meet you know companies or ceos or founders and i would get you know so excited at you know, take cold shower afterwards whereas you know i think um i like to think it's also just experience um and you know yeah. i think it's a experience yeah <laughs> mm. 
No, no, that's great. Um, speaking of uh, metabolism and experience, um, actually, this has nothing to do with that. It's something I've been really, it's a question I ask a lot of people. Um, what are the most interesting arbitrage opportunities you know of in the world today? Oh man, that, that, that's a good one. And I, I was actually thinking of one earlier because- of, you, I've got a great one for you. Yeah, because yeah. I, I mean, so the e-commerce aggregators was one of the biggest ARBs I'd ever seen, mm -hmm. right? You know, you're buying, you know, businesses on low single digit EBITDA multiples and you're funding them with really cheap debt, but also really cheap VC equity. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, your cost of capital versus return of capital. I mean, a lot of those businesses were cash flow positive, you know, from day one, high EBITDA sure. margins, you know, even after, you know, like, you know, repurchasing inventory and, you know, funding the growth, they were loan still keeping cash. So it was like, you know, amazing businesses, but it's interesting to see Thrasio is now laying off people. And, you know, there was definitely a period during the pandemic where every man and his dog was starting an e-commerce aggregator. And obviously the capital required, you know, it's quite easy to mint a unicorn. So I think, you know, that, that looked like a really obvious ARB that is starting to sort of unwind now. But, you know, sure, we've seen 10 years of e-commerce penetration packed into 18 months. But I think, you know, and, and some, of the, some of the behavior, I think, will revert as people realize, like, wow, actually, like, I really enjoy the process of shopping. And, like, I, I've, I've never really enjoyed that. But, you know, I think some people do, there is some sort of, you know, reversion in certain categories. But at the same time, too, it's also trained a lot of people and brought a lot of laggards forward. You know, like, for example, you know, like, my, my grandparents would never, ever have done, you know, they, they struggle with phones. Whereas now they order their groceries online all the time, right? So I think in many ways it's sort of moved moved groups around and has embedded a lot of behavior, which which I don't think will change. So you know, in terms of e-commerce in general, you know, I still think it's a good play. Um, but I'm interested to hear your your one. <laughs> it's it's nowhere near as sophisticated as yours, unfortunately. Um, for me, the biggest one, and actually this this happened or this occurred uh in two nine years ago actually yeah, yeah nine years ago um the first opportunity we saw for arbitrage was just buying an ungodly amount of diapers and digging a hole and just burying them underground and if you track the cost of diapers over 10 years and you track the cost of like um storing diapers under like in a container over 10 years and and you look at the actual um, the price that you'd end up paying for the price you'd end up selling those diapers for, the amount of money you could make was actually quite like ridiculous in re relation to that. And the second one that I found really, really interesting off the back of that was plastic bicycles. Like, you know, those little black plastic mm. bicycles you used to roll around in in school? Yeah, so I met this guy like like a few years ago who imported and um, sold these things. And like he'd sell them to like big wholesalers like Toys R Us and so on and so forth. And he had this connection that he made in the 80s in China who used to sell him these bikes. And he, he showed me like a graph of what the cost of those bikes was in terms of production cost and what the price that they was being sold for just on e-commerce platforms in South Africa alone. And I was like, Jesus Christ, those are better margins than most SaaS businesses, you know what I mean? And this guy was just selling black little plastic motorbikes and he was making a fortune. So I'm, I'm always interested in like those strange opportunities that no one would notice or recognize or products that have like ridiculously long time customer lifetime value as a consequence of not customer lifetime value, but rather um, uh, a, a captive audience into infinity, right? 
So like um, it's primarily around children's goods because as long as people keep on having children, there'll still be a, like a need for children's goods. Um, and then like my favorite one, of course, is luxury goods, which is like as long as there's a high concentration of rich morons in the world, you should make money. You know what I mean? And so um, going on to that. It makes money, right? So and, and yeah. I, like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a big luxury brand slut, but I think, you know, they're not necessarily you know, morons and that, you know, signaling value to the other monkeys on this, you know, planet is yeah. quite important for a lot of people. And I think, you know, it, it kind of speaks to a, another point, which, which I'd like to talk about is how like sometimes low innovation industries are really good, as you say, like, mm. you know, children, like, like pets, right? So like, there's obviously been a massive yeah. boom in pets, um, you know, co companion animals, sorry, is what they should be called, because that's what they do, right? And they, they provide a lot of independent, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. We all find it in our own ways. So yeah. yeah, so it's um you know it, that that's a really interesting space where you know you're it's really hard to innovate and actually that creates massive barriers to entry. And you know I think a lot of people in the VC space don't always like to think about barriers because it's all about disruption. But sometimes yeah. you know it, it, it's worth taking a leaf out of um, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's book and and looking at you know sort of old school um, types of defensible businesses. No, 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 100% agreed. Do you guys have any exposure to any luxury goods brands? What do you think the future of luxury goods would be? Will no, be so, I mean, like, <laughs> I only have exposure in the sense that I'm looking at my, my cupboard now. But um, <laughs> so we, you know, as I said, we, we don't invest in sort of um, you know, two consumer-facing business. But I do think, you know, NFTs are a really interesting sort of luxury, good. luxury good. Right, because you know, especially yeah. the, the sort of, the, the the top projects and that's obviously by price not by quality um although i guess yeah. as humans we, we always do love a bit of quite uh, price quality inference so mm -hmm. you know but i i think you know what i really think is interesting about nfts is that they essentially plug culture into the internet right it like provides this ability for art videos music literally like or like it puts human production online programmable monetizable and i think it's it's interesting once you start to think that you know art has always been important right or like you know art yeah. music, all of these things like let's just call it culture right all of that yeah. is important throughout human history what we currently have in the current stock is a fraction of what it could be or should be and now i'm not advocating that everyone you know gets income from the government and can sit at home writing poetry but i think you know hey, i'm advocating for that <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is something interesting in that i think you know I, like i i think and i perhaps this has you know been part of my move to europe is that you know like in sa we we grow up and we don't have exposure or as much exposure and this is you know obviously speaking a, a wide private school kid you know to the arts and culture. And then you move to Europe and you go to these incredible art galleries and you talk to your friends and, you know, they've been going to these galleries since they were seven or eight and they've grown yeah. up with this and they have this real appreciation, you know, and, and not just for the individual areas of interest, you know, music or art or whatever, whatever movement it is, they get how it all blends together. Yeah. And, and I think that's something, you know, where, perhaps you know and this is obviously you know it seems logical but ideally you know everyone in the world has access to to that culture and that learning and look i i think you know a lot of 
what attracts people's attention and obviously you know what gets printed in the media is you know the, the price rises and the speculation all of that stuff but what i think is great about that it's it's almost this perfect sort of mechanism that that attracts people's attention that sucks people in right so the fact that the price leads innovation and web3 i think is very much a feature and not a bug because it creates this incentive for people to leave great jobs at salesforce or other fantastic dev shops or you know any, any other company and think about starting their own project right and because of mm. the the sandbox that web3 provides where you can innovate on business models you know, incentive mechanisms, all of those things, you know, it, it allows people the freedom to do to do stuff which you know normally they wouldn't do. And I think ultimately if you look at, you know, societies that have accelerated their development over the last hundred years, those are societies where there's been freedom for people to innovate. And whether that's in the bankruptcy laws or privacy laws or you know, whatever it is, or or the way they run their economy, I think that that freedom to innovate is so important. Super, super interesting. Um, problematic question, but that's me. Do you think non-productive PhDs can be classified as, pro as luxury goods? <laughs> yeah, it's funny because, you know, like I, I don't want to mention privacy, <laughs> but I, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate, you know, that, that, that this may be indexing, you know, highly to that group, in, in, at least in SA. Um, but yeah, I've always thought that like any higher education is a luxury good, particularly the sort of higher education that I received. And, you know, in many ways, it's for the parents, right? Your parents want to feel like, and so now I'm just speaking strictly about private school in South Africa, and I'll, I'll turn to PhD now because, you know, I did an MBA, which was ungodly expensive. And, mm. you know, but I'll get to that now, you know, like with, with private school, you know, you're sending your kids to, you know, to, to these ridiculously expensive country clubs because it makes you feel good, right? It's, it's actually a luxury. Potential time for rich kids. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it, shout out to my house. <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly. And, yeah. and, and every parent wants to feel like, you know, they've, they've done, you know, the, the best they could, right? And then when it comes to yeah. my sort of experience in the MBA, you know, it was a fantastic platform for me to let, like, launch my career in private markets and, and move to London. It totally softened the blow. It gave me a personal and professional network that I couldn't have created in 10 years, you know, and gave me that in two, and really created an inflection point in my life. So I have only good things to say about the London Business School MBA. But at the same time, too, it's a very expensive degree. And a lot of people, you know, think that it, it confers on them, you know, ability, which just quite frankly, isn't there. And I think it's interesting that, you know, people that we think, and, and it's generally accepted as a society that you can teach management skills, Whereas in my mind, management's a lot about decision making, and there are decision making frameworks, and there are ways of you know sort of breaking down problems. But you know, some uh, like a lot of it is actually just pure talent and the way that we sort of think and in how you think, right? And it's like it is really, I believe you can tr like improve how you think, but you know, training how you think is really really difficult. This is hard to understand how you think. I think a lot of people don't have that sort of sense of awareness. So in many ways, I totally think it is. You know, like most higher education is a is a luxury good. Interesting, interesting, and which leads me to my next question, which we touched on briefly earlier. Um, so, I, I suppose from a biomedical perspective and like a biotech perspective, um, I've got um, an unhealthy amount of time spent like diving down rabbit holes around CRISPR technology and like uh, the future of uh, like 
of, of human um, genetic alteration, right? So do you guys, or do you ever think about the future of like designer pets and designer babies and what that's going to look like in the next 20 to 30 years? And in relation to that, how that will change people's perspectives around value as a whole? Because like, don't get me wrong, like, you know, a board ape NFT is super cool. And like, um, hold on one second. A board ape NFT is really super cool. And, you know, so is like a bag from insert Italian famous name brand like Dolce & Gabbana. But like, you know, for me personally, like a miniature bear is 10 times cooler than all of those things combined, right? And like <laughs> with the advances we're making in certain industries and fields, that looks like uh, a reality that's going to be uh, here a lot sooner than later. And then on the CRISPR side, you know, from the human like baby perspective, the ability to gene edit will essentially mean that we can eliminate a lot of hereditary diseases from children's uh, lives. But at the same time, it also allow like really weird, pervasive, perverted things like making sure my child is tall or smart or it's got good teeth or, you know, you name a name and name and name and so on and so forth. So that, that isn't commodified right now, right? Of course, like it's still very much in its early nascent phases. But once that starts to scale, you know, what effect do you think that will have on our society as a whole? So that is sorry. That's the longest question. No, 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 no. I was going to say like that is firmly in the box of things that I don't understand. Um, <laughs> I find incredibly interesting. Um, yeah. But I'm I'm going to take that in in another direction because mm. like take me. I, <laughs> I, you know, I think the idea of designer babies is quite interesting, and mm. I was very much you know I think like most people wanted perfect partners, perfect kids. X, Y, and Z. And recently I've had sort of got a profound realization about my dating life. And, and that's that I'm into variable rewards. Like I'm a gambler. Like, I like going on dates because I have no idea what I'm going to get. And part of that is a function of the, the fact that I, I just don't have time to do sort of like in-depth DD on all the people I meet, you know. Yeah, that's really sexy, by the way. But <laughs> you know, the other part of it is that, like, no matter how long you talk to someone, you know, especially if it's just purely in an online context, you're not really going to know what it's like and who and like how they are as a partner and all of those things. And I think, you know, whereas I probably would have been, you know, quite keen to, you know, give up my kid all the things that I never had. You know, for example, like I come from a super sporty family, but was totally skipped on the sport genes, you know? So like, I would love to like reactivate those genes. And at the same time too, you know, I kind of like the fact that you, you your kids are sort of, you know, a combination of, of you and, and the person you, yes. you have kids with. And, you know, like, I think, you know, that's, it's really cool to see how, you know, they end up with bits of you and bits of them and, you know, like mm. you know, all of your bad bits and all of their good bits. And, you know, I think, you know, that's, that's really interesting. And, you know, Talk, talking to, to to parents as well and, and hearing how you know they've their relationship with their kids has evolved over time that sort of variability of it i think is is quite important and i wouldn't want to and i, I think also too, I, like I, I don't want to be too involved in my kids lives mm -hmm. I, I want to in the sense that like i want to provide as much support and as much guidance and be a complete like open resource but i don't want to be over their shoulder telling them what to do yeah. today, yeah. who to be friends with. And I think, yeah, yeah that, that, that's what it really is about. And I think, I think there's obviously been sort of, you know, like people been well, as generations, we've been course correcting, right? You know, where there's like, you know, the silent generation and then, you know, they're 
our parents felt felt like you know because their their parents were sort of treated them like you know don't don't bother us walk yourself to school they were super involved in our lives you know it's gonna be really interesting to see how we are as parents um because you know obviously every every set of parents screws up the next generation um correct so yeah, I think I think that's I mean that's sort of where I I sort of sit on that. Um, I know that's completely unrelated to to what what we were talking about, but I I like the way that this is this is meandering. No, 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 I like it. Going and that's a really nice segue into the next question. Um, speaking around bits and like small aspects of you that you, your your children inherit. Um, so I mean, like I think a lot of people like over allocate. Um, importance to certain hard skills in the space that you're in, but there's like very little consideration given to the soft skills. And, you know, in your experience, having been in the space for quite a while now, you know, what, what soft skills do you see that are drastically underappreciated in your field that having them, you know, accelerates your trajectory and accelerates your growth without having much in the, like, even though they, they don't seem that valuable, you know, um, at, at face value. Yeah, I think honestly, just being a nice person is so underrated. Yeah, and I think yeah, and and that and that's in many ways why I think I was drawn to venture. I've always had this issue, you know, that you know people saying nice guys finish last and business is dog eat dog and all this stuff, and and perhaps you know maybe in in other contexts it is, but ultimately people want to do business with people they like, and I yeah. think you know with especially when it comes to founders, for example, you know, when the current sort of climate that we've been through, they've got a choice of term sheets, right? And they want to partner up and they want to work with people they really like. When it comes to to raising money from LPs, it also works the same way, right? Because I think even though you are being paid for your judgment as an investment manager, there's a lot of other parts of the LP experience, you know, the communication, the updates, bring, you know, providing access where it's appropriate to portfolio companies. Likewise, you know, making introductions the other way. Uh, a lot of LPs have large operating businesses, which are sort of strategic for a lot of portfolio companies. So, you know, it really, you know, being a nice person really does pay in this industry. And I think, and, that, and that's also why I really love it, is that the people in this world and this ecosystem really value that and they're really thoughtful and they want to do long-term business with long-term people. And they're not sort of, you know, caught up in the day-to-day transactional nature of, of business, which I, th- I think for most people, because I think most, that's what most businesses are, um, you know, trading goods and services, it's, it definitely, it isn't as enjoyable. So I guess in many ways, it, it makes it easier to be nice, right? Like it also makes yeah. it easy that like, we're always hopping on like, you know, 30, 45 minute calls, telling each other, you know, like how great we, are, we all are and, you know, and congratulations <laughs> on this. And, you know, so like there definitely are parts of it which are, which are unique to the industry. But I think, yeah, man, like nice guys, you know, don't finish last in VC. No, no, I, I think I can very much second that. Um, I've met a considerable amount of VCs who thought the sun shone out of their ass and were real dickbags. And... I've met a lot of guys who just happen just to be really like great guys. And I generally tend to give those great guys a lot more attention. And I've seen them succeed a lot more than the guys who, you know, got obsessed with Patrick Bateman and now think that they're American psycho. So I can second that in a big way. Um, Going back to soft skills and um, 
VC. Um, one thing I'm super interested in that I, I don't think gets enough um, attention in today's world, especially in the light of COVID and what's happened um, around everyone essentially being alone, is um, the loneliness vertical. So are you familiar with this oh, as an idea? Yeah, I am, but keep going. Yeah, yeah. So like, I've been fascinated by this idea for years, and this is like well before COVID occurred, you know, and it was like, what does what does loneliness look like at scale? You know, like when we have a series of entrepreneurs and companies like really trying to target the loneliness vertical in like very, um, not just, you know, short term, but like holistic kind of ways, you know what I mean? And like, you know, we've seen like the small versions of this in like apps like Tinder and Bumble and like, you know, the, 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 the bigger these apps get, the more hyper-specialized their competitors become, right? So like Tinder is great because it's like everyone and anyone can join Tinder. And then over time, you know, you've got Bumble, which is like woman-led first, and then you got like things like Field and so and so and so forth. And then like to add to that, you also have what I like to call like the rent-a-grandkid complex that isn't as big as I think it's going to be. But I think in the next 10 years, like rent-a-grandkid, like rent, like some kind of companionship, like uh, will become a massive, massive part of, you know, um, the, 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 I suppose the, what you'd call like the social income, like uh, complex. And I, I'm fascinated from your side as an investor, if you've seen anything interesting around that and where do you think that space is going to go? Yeah, I know. Like, I think it's a massive, massive vertical. And if I look at sort of how I allocate a lot of my discretionary income, a lot of that is trying to fill that loneliness. And I think, you know, a lot of it does come from, you know, just trying to do something that's quite difficult on your own. Mm. And yeah. not, you know, especially, you know, it actually doesn't matter what you're doing. If a lot of the people around you as friends or family don't quite understand what you're doing, it, it like it really is quite difficult to to talk things through. And if you know you, you need an ear, that is quite hard. So I definitely do believe in the in the value uh, or the sort of size of the loneliness vertical. What I think is really interesting is that you know we've developed technologies which in theory should make us feel more connected, but we've never felt yeah. sort of this disjointed. And it kind of you know goes against this you know idea that you know oh well you know if we just have more connection or we have more bandwidth, more time spent with people, we'll feel, you know that that's better, right? And I think yeah you know if you've if you've sort of spent any time with taking things out of your life, right? Whether it's, you know, like awareness and meditation or, you know, sort of actual just denial because, you know, it's good for you. Um, you know, I, I think in my in my approach to relationships, I've sort of tried to spend less time with some people. And then when I've spent time with them, really focused. And I've found that's definitely helped a lot of my, my, my relationships. But I haven't seen any businesses really sort of gone after this. I think what's also difficult is that, like, loneliness takes lots of different forms right like you kind of touched on yeah, physical yeah. physical loneliness right with all the dating apps you know i guess you know there are some you know really interesting there's there's a, there's a business in the uk um called paradigm which is um essentially almost like a therapist but it's sort of driven through prompts and you know daily meditations videos that kind of stuff and, you know, sort of like online therapy, I think is really interesting. And it's something that I've sort of personally learned into recently because I just realized like it's always, it's actually great value for money. Um, so I think this, you know, the online therapy stuff's interesting. The the sort of performance coaching at work stuff is probably tangential to that. I think it's obviously a, a corporate imperative, but I think a lot of people are getting a lot of personal value from, 
from those sort of you know businesses which have raised a lot of money and are scaling quite quickly obviously you know when you've got massive enterprise clients uh, it's a lot easier to do that um but yeah i think that that is definitely like the un the big untapped um you know vertical you know in, in many ways i think like that's the, the sort of shadow pandemic of our generation um, yes. and we you know we just haven't quite haven't quite cracked it right and i think it's also too it's interesting as like a guy i think and look this is obviously my perspective it's my lived experience that like you know you kind of go through your 20s dealing with that with by drinking and then you come yeah. in your 30s yeah. and you're like or achieve like you can't do this anymore like you know cool. you, you feel it on a monday morning so you, you sort of have to find other ways to to deal with that sort of profound loneliness that comes from from being human you know we, we enter this world on our own we spend a time with a bit of people and we leave on our own so i think mm. you know loneliness itself is also something that perhaps the culture and our modern culture needs to sort of change the language around because you know we keep thinking it's a bad thing but yeah. part of being human right and it's you know and just because you're alone doesn't mean you're lonely right and I think, correct correct yeah. you know, again it's one of those things where you know perhaps just from a younger age you know we need to have conversations with people and and change that perception no 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 i 100 agree with you i mean like i openly tell people i'm lonely all the time and i always get this very awkward weird silence like i'm gonna kill myself and i'm like no i'm not gonna kill myself I'm just going to walk around naked all the time, you know, like calm down, like, <laughs> admitting you're lonely is not a disease. It's like, it's the same. I'm lonely. So what? You know what I mean? I'm just letting, at least I'm acknowledging it and not like drinking it away. You know what I mean? Or like sniffing it away. Yeah. And don't um, ask me how I am if you don't want to know the answer. <laughs> exactly. But like, so like, I don't know. My big thing is like, go fucking deep, dude. You know, like if you meet someone, like I want to find out about like the dark stuff, you know what I mean? I'm not interested in like, things are going well like kiss my ass if things are going well then why are you telling me you know what i mean tell me about the messed up shit that, that's what i want to know about you know um which i think leads on to my next question quite nicely actually and thanks for setting me up there serena um so <clears throat> i read this crazy stat the other day that like has got me like really thinking about this for like a long long time especially in like macroeconomic patterns and cycles and like um i'm not an investor like you but i suppose i do invest my time and my money in small things but you know, I always like to look at very strange economic indicators because I feel like they tell a better story than the traditional economic indicators, right? And the one that like really fucked me up the most was I saw a stat said from the International Guild of Professional Butlers. I didn't even know this place existed, by the way. So according to the International Guild of Professional Butlers, Britain had 30,000 working butlers in the year 1930. By 1980, these numbers had dwindled down to the low hundreds. Today, that number now stands at 10,000. What do you think this trend tells us about the future of the UK, London, tier one cities and equity markets? And if there's anything we can extract from this to tell us a bit more about the future and the current economic cycle that we're currently in. Wow, that is, that is really <laughs> uh, Sorry, I, I should have given you a bit more warning about that one. Look, it speaks to a concentration of wealth that has occurred over the last sort of 40 years and i'm yeah. using the stats you know the percentage that the top one percent own you know and i think you know where there was sort of you know the breaking of the labor unions but also the transition of our economy away from sort of manufacturing more towards services and now increasingly mm. technology related services right so mm. i think there have been these concentrations of wealth look i think wealth naturally compounds even though yeah you know, the most common saying throughout all cultures and languages is 
shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, you know, because like, you know, hard times, you know, create, you know, good men and good men create, you know, easy times for their kids and their kids then, you know, go and, go and spend the money. But I think wealth does yeah. compound because wealth and education and opportunity all go hand in hand. And it just, it, it is easy to make money with money as, as you know, right. Um, mm. And so, you know, I think that that's really interesting. And, and, you know, that's, you know, all these sort of factors come together and, and are creating increasing wealth um, across, you know, across a certain subject of society. And I think that has really profound long-term implications for completely. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, you know, we basically, you know, we, we got to keep interest rates low to keep the show on the road, to keep the prices <laughs> high and, you know, because you to know, keep making rich people richer, essentially. Exactly. Right. And, and, yeah. you know, I, and obviously, you know, for a lot of balance sheets, you know, to, to keep them from being over leveraged. So we're kind of stuck in this, you know, low interest rate, you know, where a lot of the inflation is in, until, the, you know, the last couple of months has, has only really sort of shown up in asset prices. Um, and we're also too, you know, we're, we're not doing a good enough job of taxing, taxing the rich, you know, and, and that's the problem with, with money is that money talks, right? It drives the system, mm. it, it, it buys political favor. So, you know, I, I think the concentration of wealth is like a real problem, but at the same time too, I, I do have hope from the fact that the people, you know, sort of creating a lot of the wealth at the moment are quite thoughtful people. And I would much rather be ruled by the billionaire class than, you know, the, the sort of political class, which has the sort of, you know, more greed, less competence, you know, and the fact that like a lot of these billionaires give away a lot of their wealth, that gives me a lot of hope for, you know, the sort of where we're going as a, as a species. No, interesting, interesting. I mean, I, I think like the, the the political spectrum that we currently exist within right now has got way too many incentives for like perverse and perverted behavior. So I think the problem with it is that like you can't expect a dog to like pick vegetables for food. You know what I mean? And the same way you can't expect public officials to make decisions that are, that benefit the whole if there's no like, you know, um, uh, incentive for benefiting the whole. You know, so it's going to be the same bullshit, you know, different story every single day. So, yeah. Um, speaking of which, you know, I mean, we just spoke briefly around Web3 and like um, the incredible innovations that are happening in that space and generally in financial technology. Do you guys ever consider that there will be any kind of some kind of an evolution that will see public markets and like general stock exchanges and, you know, certain asset classes being replaced or innovated by some new kind of technology? So I think it's very easy to imagine someone like out innovating like the 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 the, the I don't know like the, the companies and you know organizations, but it's very difficult for someone to imagine someone out innovating like the Nasdaq. You know what I mean? But you know, as time has taught us one thing over the years is that these things do happen, and I think you have a much better purview or perspective on this as someone who works a bit closer to those markets. Do you think there's anything that's going to disrupt those? Um, yeah, like I, I think the sort of rise of private exchanges, you know, and these things, you know, it, it'll take time for them to develop, but, you know, the, and, and, and the changing regulatory environment, right? So the SEC is relaxed, the credit investor laws. So a lot more people are investing in private assets, you know, the rise of sort of exchanges, the commoditization of holdings and companies, you know, so basically, you know, if, if we go back to sort of 2000, 
the average age of a company IPOing on the NASDAQ was like five years, whereas now yeah. it's sort of 12, 13. A lot of that, you know, obviously th there was a unique time where you could list, you know, and just change your name to .com and, you know, create a massive, you know, amount of demand for your stock based, based on sort of nothing. But now, yeah. you know, now we, we have a lot more sort of well-oiled uh, private capital system. There's a lot of money in private markets, so companies can afford to stay um, private for longer. But then at the same time, too, employees need liquidity. So they, you know, a lot, a lot of the desire um, for these sort of ex private market exchanges has been from early investors, early employees. So, you know, I think a lot of that activity will sort of rise and sort of mirror what you see in sort of public markets, but ultimately, you know, liquidity is, is, is really like, it, it can't be undervalued. And I think a lot of people right now are realizing that the value of liquidity. So, you know, I don't think public markets will ever be replaced. I think in terms of trading technology, you know, it, it's, it's NASDAQ and, you know, a bunch of these sort of high frequency trading firms, they're on the bleeding edge as it is. So I, I like, I don't know, from a technology perspective, if there's anything to sort of replace those, I think you're probably going to see more innovation on sort of company structure and organization and incentivization, but at the same time too, you know, so obviously I'm kind of referring to DAOs here, um, but at the same time too, I think, you know, it's all got to be within a legal framework. And I think our experience today has been that, you know, it takes a while to change laws. So I think mm. the evolution of company law is going to be a multi-decade um, if not sort of multi-century theme. So, you know, I think that that'll happen over time and obviously in response to changes in technology and the structure of our economy and, and those things. Um, I think, you know, private markets are interesting because you don't have the same homogeneity that you have for, you know, for example, public equity markets. Um, yeah. You know, we, we deal in a lot of sort of secondaries and stuff like, you know, where we're, we're, we're buying stock in private companies off, of you know, existing investors and there's there's always legal complications um there's internal company processes that you have to go through so you know, turning those things into tradable assets is quite difficult um but at the same time too i, th I think you know fractionalizing certain asset classes digitizing them um changing that sale process to to make it a lot easier that's super helpful so i'm not sure if you know i don't ever think public markets will die right because and look, a, mm -hmm. a large part of the public markets is also to serve uh, the pension industry, right? They're, they're the biggest owner of public market assets. And you know, they yeah. they need that liquidity because, you know, like one, to sort of manage their, their large exposures, but two, to be able to meet the needs of, of the people they're managing money on behalf. So I think, you know, yeah, I mean, like it, it'll be, I think ultimately we'll see the sort of blurring of the lines, right? Um, and and that's sort of inevitable. I mean, you know, it's it's what's one of the most fundamental laws of thermodynamics is that entropy always increases, right? So I think the system will get more chaotic. It'll be more, you know, interlinked. I think you're really starting to see that now, right? With you know some of the you know public companies training like shit coins, frankly, um, and and mega cap names, you know. So I mean, like it's 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 hard to to remember a time when you know like top 20 stocks would be down like 20% in a day because they missed earnings, right? So I think, you know, it's it's really, it's an interesting time to be market-facing. Okay, interesting, interesting. Um, which leads me to my next question. What is your general overall thoughts on DAOs? And uh, so, so I suppose there's two parts to this. 
is one is what are general thoughts on DAOs? Second question would be, what do you think about companies that are selling early equity and liquidity in their business via like mechanisms like tokens and um, yeah, tokens essentially, crypto tokens specifically? Yeah, like I, I think the, the second one's probably easier first. I think in a bull market, it's a great way to raise funding on you know way better terms than you could. You know, it's faster. You don't have to, like you know the DD process is completely different. Um, but then, you know, you, you're not finding partners for the long term where the most VCs are great partners for the long term is obviously moot. But I think, you know, in bull markets, that's a, that's a great way to raise money. But you do kind of set yourself, you know, sort of along that path then because legally it becomes quite difficult um, for traditional firms then to invest in tokens and then, you know, to kind of issue equity later. You know, where do you stand vis-a-vis the tokens legally? So, you know, it, it, yeah. it does, does create, like, it, it solves short-term problems, but creates long-term problems. Um, yeah. And then in terms of DAOs, you know, I think that there is interesting to see, like, so much innovation in terms of, so like, company structure or maybe more, sort of, let's say, organization structure and, and how to incentivize. And look, I mean, that that is been sort of the fundamental driver of us as a species or, or, or sort of success factor has been that we've been able to organize ourselves into groups, right? And achieve things, create things. And I think, so the fact that we're innovating on the way that we do that is fantastic. But again, it's not the silver bullet, right? Like just because you decentralize, you know, which is obviously, you know, everyone thinks I understand the word, but like, just because you're, you're decentralizing ownership doesn't mean ownership can't concentrate, right? And it Correct. Mean that, you know, not yeah, exactly. Yeah. These organizations like can't, can't be controlled and influenced. So you know, I think we're, we're, I, I get a little bit you know frustrated when people say that decentralization is going to solve anything. It's like you basically just move the cups around, and you know, like the the lady is still in the same place. Like it's still the same problem. Like you know, he has the gold, makes the rules. You know, p- people with with economic power they want voting power as well, right? So I think yeah. you know and. And look, I mean, it's it, a lot of people have used that sort of sleight of hand to enrich themselves. And, you know, like, that's cool if they want to do that. Um, but I think, look, it, it's I think it's a good thing. You know, we should, like, we should, as often as possible, be questioning, is this the best way to do this? And I think we've come a long way with company law, but there are still a lot of things which might not be optimized for, you know, that sector or that industry or the way, the rate of change, for example, in technology. So, you know, I think it, it's a good thing, generally. Okay. okay. All right. No, no, no. Um, I think the one thing that always comes to mind, in my mind, around that model is, um, I think investing in a company through some kind of token structure is really cool. I think where I get a bit nervous is, uh, like, the idea of, like, incentivizing early users by giving them equity and ownership in the business. Um, and then, you know, those users then benefiting from, you know, backing your product early. I think the problem with that, though, of course, is that those users are intensified then to increase the value of their stock, not to necessarily increase the utility of the product itself. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, so, and, and a lot of these, you know, like a lot of these models, I, I just don't understand, you know, g- given how heavily incentivized um, some of the early users are, how that is actually helpful to the system or how the activity that they're incentivizing is value adding, you know, some of these like walk to earn projects just make absolutely no sense to me. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting because, 
you know, a, a, lo a lot of projects are very much Ponzi-ish in nature. And I think <laughs> people think that like, oh, well, like it's like, you know, it, it hard, it's unsustainable. Like, people forget like Bernie Madoff was going for 17 years. So like yeah. Ponzi's are incredibly, you know, and, and, and obviously because like, you know, they, they promise and sustain to be high returns and that's how they attract new money and that's how they sort of sustain themselves. Um, but yeah, like yeah, I mean, like, it's the CA like Ponzi scheme, right? Like that they got you with, right? Like, like I, I got my brother very exactly, hard with that. Exactly right. And, and I, look, I th I think you know, in many ways, our, our modern financial system is a Ponzi scheme, right? We need mm -hmm. we need young people coming in to do the hard work. Well, not the hard work, but some of the work, and you know, paying them crappy salaries, getting them to underwrite our pension funds and our, you know, and, and, and our medical system, right? Like, you know, you need the young, healthy people at the bottom so that we can all can have like ridiculously expensive oncology treatment to extend our life by six months. Right. So yeah, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of our system and it's going to be hell of interesting to see how that all shapes out. Obviously you've got sort of China's one child policy creating a massive, um, you know, kind of population crash that they're heading towards. Even the U.S. hasn't been near the sort of two point one baby replacement rate for fifty. Years. Yeah, I think it's like sub two now. I know like, they, they, they haven't been there for fifty years, so it's like yeah, you know, it, it's it's really interesting. Obviously, you know, like Japan has seemed to have sort of survived it okay until now. Mm, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would, I wouldn't back that. Like twenty thirty, or I think you'll revise your entire thesis. Well, now. exactly right. So, so I'm saying, like you know, the, like the jury is still out on. And I think, you know, the nature of these things are, is that, you know, it, it does sort of happen really slowly and then it's all at once, right? Um, yeah, as yeah. people, you know, as the, the unsustainable nature of it becomes so apparent, undeniable. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the sort of Ponzi that has been the, the 20th and 21st century, you know, might, it might be, and I really hope it doesn't, right? Because, look, I, I think in some ways, you know, either, you know, the system's going to undo itself like most of civilizations do, or we're going to be so advanced, we're just going to consume so much and we're going to destroy this planet and we're all going to burn up anyway. So it's kind of like, you know, whether we, the climate does it or whether we sort of destroy ourselves, you know, it's, it's all going to happen anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm far more optimistic than you are. You know what I mean? I'm, 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 I'm a big fan of the Duex Machina, the Machina coming in, right? Like the, the Knights of the Vale are going to ride in to help us in the Battle of the Bastards. Um, no, cool. All right, cool. Just to, 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 to wrap it up, a few quick fire questions. Um, quick one. What's a book you didn't enjoy, however, had a lasting impression on you? Oh, man. Um, I've got a good one for you. The, yeah. The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. Like, okay, you didn't enjoy it, but it had a lasting impression. Yeah, it was just, it was, it was so talked up, but. A lot of the core, I think I, I read it too young and a lot of the mm. core sort of um, themes came back to be sort of quite useful. And I, and I kind of reread it and enjoyed it more the second time, but still don't like it as a book. And I think it's totally overrated. Okay. I was going to say the Bible, but you know, that's just me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. What do you consider magical, even though you know it's not? I, I think opera singers are magical and I think cars are magical, but I know they're not. You know, like I was at a really fancy lunch before this and mm -hmm. the dessert came out and it was the most incredible thing yes. I've ever tasted. Yeah. And I said to my dinner, well, my lunch, it's sort of compatriots. I was like, I couldn't do this. Like if you, if you locked me in a, in a kitchen for six months, I couldn't come up with this. 
So I think like mm. yeah, there's a real artistry to to like you know fine cuisine, which I just I can't do. Like you know I can make you know spaghetti bolognese, and that is literally like the upper end of my creativity. You know, <laughs> that's my boy flexing his muscles. But, you know, so and I, I really just you know like I, I believe like it is magic, like that they could think to make you know, and combine all these ingredients and even just to source them. Like, you know, and when they give you the whole spiel about like how these tiny little crabs create the like, you know, the best flavor for the foam. And just like this is just, yeah, this is just magic, man. It's black magic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like I I I met a dude recently who's a sommelier and he took me like wine tasting and like it blew my mind how much he could like ascertain from a glass of wine with like no information whatsoever. You know what I mean? They just poured three glasses and he said, this is this and this and this. And I was like, wow, you're like my dad and I'm two. And you know how to open a jar. You know, it's amazing. It's magical. Yeah. And you're yeah. like, yeah, it's, it's a white. <laughs> <laughs> this one's got booze, Baba. This is the one, you know? Yeah. Okay. Another one. Who is the person you admire the least? Wow. This is a hard question. If you don't know, I have an answer to it. That's all good. No, I, I think, you know, I really think, well, like I want, I want to say Jacob Zuma because I just think that guy, like, but in some ways I do admire the way he just does not give a single fuck. So, so that yeah. that's that's actually not not true either. Like, yeah, I I think I really don't admire people who just don't try. Like, I don't give a shit like mm. what you do, what you know, what fires you up, but like just have a go. Like, you've got to. Mm. If you get one life, it's it's so meaningless in the context of the universe. You know, you're going to be anything you do is going to be forgotten, you know, within like three generations, like don't care, just have a go, create something, build something, you know, start a podcast, write a book, you know, start a business, just do something, just don't stay in your lane and do what your parents and your friends do. And yeah, yeah I think those, and, and like, I think it's almost that like sort of faceless mob of people that we know that just, you know, just don't step out of their comfort zone. Yeah. 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 I mean, like there's that, uh, as someone who grew up playing way too much sport and not being good at them like you know it's like have a jaw you know like throw the ball around don't 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 play defensive rugby like play attacking rugby it's a lot more fun and who cares if you lose at least you had a good time you know what i mean exactly words so, yeah. yeah 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 i mean on my side it's like i think the basketball player kevin durant maybe and like Christo visa but that's another story <laughs> for another day. yeah 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 um okay cool i've got this incredible time machine in my backyard you come to my house one day and you can't necessarily go back in time, but I can take you to a time where you can meet someone specifically, but you can't really like travel that much. And the only person I can really take you to meet is your great, great grandfather. And you've got like 15 minutes with him. What do you think the most interesting thing you could tell your great, great grandfather is? Yeah. You know, I still, I still think the internet is the most fundamental game changing human innovation. Like, it just does not make sense. I mean, like, it, it still boggles my parents' mm. mind that, you know, we can call and, you know, we can have, that you and I can have this conversation, you know, yeah. thousands of kilometers apart that we can, you know, do this. The fact that, you know, this can be recorded on the internet and, you know, it'll be processed somewhere else and, you know, you can then, you know, edit it and, you know, like, and you can just like stop and go and make a cup of tea. And like the fact that, you know, it really is just this fundamental game changer. I think, you know, explaining that would be impossible in 15 minutes. Mac wouldn't even be nearly long enough. Um, 
you know, I, I think, you know, like people sort of, you know, like mobile has been great, but the, like the internet is still, you know, like wave one, man. Like that was, that was the game changer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I would like the thing I would say to my grandfather is that they are abundant mates in the future. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that would blow his mind more than anything else that like you can live in a city where you literally cannot run out of people to date. It's like that, that always blows my mind. You know what I mean? Whereas my great, great grandfather couldn't have lived in a city with more than 5,000 people. So that's a good one. Okay. Last one before we wrap it up. Um, modern technology progresses dramatically over the next decade. And it turns out that you, Mr. Murphy, are going to live another hundred years without body deterioration. And I'm going to rewind your metabolism and like your general feeling in your body so that you kind of still feel like you're 25 years old for the next 100 years. How would this change your outlook in life? And what do you think you'd do differently? Oh, man, dude, I honestly don't think it would change a thing. I think death is the greatest gift in that it makes our lives super precious. It gives value. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, to, to all the NFT dudes, you know, it's scarcity, man. Like, that's what it, it gives your life um, value. And I think I, I wouldn't change a thing. It would be quite cool to connect with people from different generations. And, you know, but I, I think, I, you know, I'd go around the same basis trying to have, you know, interesting conversations with interesting people, do meaningful work with meaningful people. You know, I really don't think like much would change. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's the nature of, of human life is that, you know, you, you've got to give this one little, you know, kind of trip meaning and you've, you, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to create that meaning. You can't look for it, you know, elsewhere in someone else in, you know, some, you know, maybe these are my religious views, but you know, like in, in this, you know, you've really just got to make the most of the time that you have here, however long it is. Yeah. And actually, you know, the, a, fr a friend of mine from school is actually now literally dying right now. And it has created, you know, not, it's obviously, you know, it's, it's terribly sad and, it's been so hard to watch someone sort of die in slow motion, but yeah, you know, it, it, that really does. It reminds like death is so important because it reminds you the value of life. And I, you know, I'm not sure, actually sure I would, I would want, you know, another hundred years. Um, and I don't think it would change the way I live my life. Okay. Great answer. Brendan Murphy. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this wonderful conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope you did as well. Um, where can people find you if they want to irritate you with questions and try pitch you on their late stage companies that you will not take their requests for? Yeah, man. I, I'm on um, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Find me, Brennan Murphy. This is Brennan Murphy. Um, I think my Twitter handle is Mr. Harden by Pun, although I'm actually changing that now. Uh, that I hear okay. how silly it sounds <laughs> and yeah, um, you know, like they can hit up on our, our website, www.cypresspondcapital.com. Um, they'll see sort of the contact us their section. Um, yeah, man. But I mean, like Google me, I think I'm pretty, like I mean, there's a lot of Brennan Murphy's out there. Um, yeah. But if you, you know, if you Google Cypress Point Capital, you'll, you'll find us. No, no. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, no, thanks dude. Amazing. Thanks, man. It was a lot, of, a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. Have a good evening. Cheers, dude. You too. Thanks so much for listening. Please don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. Um, if you would like to hear more episodes of this, you can 
subscribe to this podcast. Um, alternatively, you can contact me on Twitter. My handle is M0TH3I. Same on Instagram. And my website is on mothei.com. And that's M-O-T-H-E-I.com. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you taking the time to get this far in the podcast. Have an amazing day, week, year, and lifetime. Bye.